the EPA loses some of its power in helping protect us from the climate crisis. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Last week, SCOTUS decided that the Environmental Protection Agency will have less power to limit carbon emissions from power plants. We'll look at the ramifications of that decision. Also, I have a daughter and a son, and I can't believe that my daughter is going to have less rights than my mother. A local Catholic gynecologist discusses the reason she believes abortions should be legal. And finally, a look back at a story of the new U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson through the lens of one of her former debate peers in South Florida. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for joining us. The U.S. Supreme Court last week took away some of the bite from the EPA. In a 6-3 decision, the court decided to limit the power of the Environmental Protection Agency. Now, it's harder for the agency to limit carbon emissions that come from power plants. And yet, some of the conservative justices did point out the threat of the climate crisis. What does this mean to try and get the country off of fossil fuels like coal and more towards renewable energy sources? Well, joining me now is Justin Gillis. He's former New York Times reporter covering climate change, and he has a book out later this year. It's called The Big Fix, Better Helping un- the Public Understand What They Can Do to Limit Further Climate Change. Justin, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, we should try by start uh, explaining the powers of the EPA and how much of what they do is in response to congressional direction and how much, I wonder, how much autonomy do they actually have? Yeah, the main law that's concerned here is, uh, of course, the Clean Air Act. And um, it is a, a powerful law. Uh, when Congress passed this law back in the 1970s, they understood that uh, not all pollutants were had, had even been discovered at that time, that, that in the future scientists would discover uh, new ones, would discover new problems that needed to be dealt with in the air quality. And so they gave the EPA this pretty large grant of authority uh, to regulate future pollutants. And so the case we're talking about uh, that was decided the other day is about exactly how wide that authority is, if you will. And it was that was what West Virginia versus the EPA. That's right. And elaborate a little bit on that case specifically. It's a very strange case. Uh, it, it was a fight, a legal fight over the clean power plan, which is was an Obama era plan to try to limit um, emissions, greenhouse gas emissions from. Uh, primarily coal-burning power plants, uh, that plan never actually went into effect. In fact, it was uh, stopped by the Supreme Court itself. Uh, Obama then left office. Trump came in and repealed that plan and put something much weaker in place. So we're talking about a plan here that uh, never actually took effect and never will take effect. Uh, And yet the Supreme Court felt compelled um, to rule on that plan, on the validity of that plan, which is just a strange thing for them to do. And what they did in the case was to uh, limit the powers of the EPA uh, to broadly regulate, I guess I guess you would say, the, the um, 
American electric electricity industry, the emissions from the industry. Uh, but they didn't go as far as a lot of climate advocates feared that they would. They uh, th this this could have been worse from the standpoint of climate action. Uh, it's a, a reasonably narrow uh, decision uh, that does uh, continue to allow the EPA to have power to regulate greenhouse gases. We just don't know now what kind of plan would pass muster at the Supreme Court. This Obama-era plan did not. What kind of impact, then, do you think this is going to have on President Biden's uh, plans to reduce carbon emissions? Well, this seems to have been the uh, the court's motive was, you know, in taking this case, which is not really a live controversy anymore. They seem to be sending a message to the Biden administration about don't go too far. Now, the Biden folks are coming up with their own plan. They're going to replace what Trump did with uh, uh, a new set of rules under the Clean Air Act. Uh, I believe some version of that plan is due uh, by early next year. Uh, and, you know, the Supreme Court, is, I guess, has made it clear, really, you can't do this the way Obama tried to do it, uh, which was sort of grab, you know, grab and regulate the entire electricity industry and, uh, and you know, force them to use less coal and more gas. That was the Obama thing, essentially. Uh, and, and it seems like what Biden does is going to have to be narrower, but we really don't know now. This, this opinion wasn't very clear about what would pass muster. So the Biden people are just going to have to try something and then we'll see that litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court, which of course could take years. Uh, and I guess then we'll find out what Biden is allowed to do. Uh, Justice uh, Elena Kagan basically said that the court has made itself the leading authority on the climate crisis. She dissented on the decision. What are the long-term ramifications of this decision though? when it comes to these efforts, not just what Biden's going to do next, but, you know, what role the EPA even plays from this point forward? Yeah. You know, this is the court saying uh, to Congress, look, on some of these, this is called, the, they're developing something called the major questions doctrine on really big, important stuff. Uh, we want you, Congress, to give agencies like the EPA uh, direct, explicit authority uh, to, you know, let's say, regulate greenhouse gases, which, which they did not do back in the 1970s because people didn't really understand at that point the, the risk of greenhouse gases. Uh, so, you know, that's nice for the court to say. The problem, of course, as you know, is that Congress is paralyzed. So, and it's we have a dysfunctional Congress these days. It can't pass, you know, budgets, much less, you know, regulations on greenhouse gases. So uh, the, the practical effect of the court decision uh, is to certainly limit and maybe kill any hope of the national government in the United States really getting its arms around this problem anytime soon. Does that mean it's just made climate action more difficult and it was already pretty difficult? I mean, does that mean the EPA doesn't have any teeth left? You know, we, as I say, we have to find out. I, I, I wouldn't go quite that far. It, it, uh, it, it is clear that, um, you know, the, the court didn't overturn the Clean Air Act. Uh, they didn't overturn their own ruling from 2009 that said if, if greenhouse gases are a danger to the public, then the EPA has to regulate them. 
So you have, you know, that was a different Supreme Court with different justices. It was a 5-4 decision, but you really got the court saying two different things now to the EPA. Uh, so what we have is a situation where the EPA is going to have to sort of thread a, a narrow needle here and uh, try to come back with some kind of regulation. Uh, in answer to your question, it will certainly be weaker than what uh, Joe Biden would like to do, and it will almost certainly be weaker than what we really need. A lot to unravel in this one. Again, talking about last week's decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, taking away some of the EPA's ability to limit carbon emissions from power plants, and again, a little bit of a blow to the Biden administration's efforts to curb those emissions. Uh, Again, you just heard from environment reporter Justin Gillis. Justin, thank you so much for the insight. I appreciate it. You're welcome. I want to turn now to Sabrina McCormick. She's an associate professor of environmental and occupational health at George Washington University. Sabrina, I mean, you just heard that. You were at the EPA, right? I was, yes. Can you tell us about what you were doing with them? Yeah, I was in what's called the Global Change Research Program in the National Center for Environmental Assessment. So we are, or we were, the research office that conduct research to support the programmatic offices at the Environmental Protection Agency. So the the programmatic, programmatic offices are the group that essentially execute policy that has been set into law. And so we were collecting data, doing analyses that could help them move those policies forward. What were your first thoughts when, and, you know, and feelings when you heard the, the SCOTUS decision? You know, I have to say, as really unsurprised as I was, it was still, it just, it made me really sad. I mean, it made me discouraged for the state of our country and the state of leadership that the United States I mean, our leadership in the world on climate change was just really dinged by that Supreme Court because that Supreme Court decision, because I think what a lot of people globally don't understand is how out of step that Supreme Court decision is with public opinion in the United States. I mean, over 80 percent of people in the United States are concerned or very concerned about climate change. And this is not a Democratic issue. This is Democrats and Republicans. And so. You know, I felt I had I had very specific reactions to specific parts of the decision that I'm happy to speak to. But overall, it it felt like just one of our main branches of of government here, a critical branch of our government, had done something that um, was just against the wishes of the American public. You know, uh, Justin kept talking about how when I mean when the EPA was first uh, first started, there were a lot of things we didn't know. But do we have scientifically, do we understand the health risks, not just, you know, burning fossil fuels and what it's doing to the climate, but the health risks of all these things that come from power plants? So we understand that now. It is so clear. There is no scientific debate. And again, I think there's a lot of misperception about what those health risks are. Not only does air pollution kill about 8 million people annually globally, it also causes many other chronic health conditions. I mean, anywhere from obviously heart attack, asthma, 
other cardiopulmonary respiratory diseases, it also does things that people are unaware of, like increase infertility rates. I mean, the air pollution that comes from power plants makes its way inside the human uterus. It makes its way through the placental barrier. And so what we are emitting now is affecting generations to come. So, you know, it's not just this abstract concept of power plants that are somewhere else affecting someone else. It's those of us who are breathing every day this air pollution, which we all are. And so really pulling that back and and really regulating that as much as we can is a critical way to improve public health and welfare. You wrote a piece back in 2017. This is under the Trump administration that said that the judicial branch was our best hope for climate action. What was the context behind that that statement back then, though? Well, I mean, the context then was that Congress and the executive branch was having a very, both of them were having a very hard time moving forward policy quickly. Now, Obama did something that was truly groundbreaking, which is called the methane rule to address methane releases now, uh, back then. And that has been reinstituted by um, Biden and but but still, the executive branch and Congress has had a really hard time moving forward. And so the, the courts really are a critical way for just a regular citizen or those of us who are seeing more acute exposures to really enforce the policies that are already in place, have been in place for a long time to make sure that laws are just being followed. So, you know, that my statement back then continues to be true with, you know, some maybe some caveats now. I mean, because as you watch Trump put three justices on the court and then you have in numerous states, but I'll just speak to Florida. You had uh, Governor DeSantis putting in almost half the Supreme Florida Supreme Court. When you see that, did you still have the faith that the courts are going to be, you know, the, the, the thing that helps the public get, you know, what they desire out there? Yeah, I mean, I think they continue to be an important avenue of of enforcement and of um, of uh, accountability. I, I think they are still very important and we can't just um, throw them away. I do think that the Supreme Court has really made itself irrelevant in regards to climate change and really in, in regards to protecting public health and welfare in many different dimensions. However, there are lower courts, there are state courts, there are other courts of in various jurisdictions that that continue to play a very important role. If not the courts, where do we go from here on this on the bigger issue of, of climate change and, and what this decision has done uh, to to lessen the effectiveness of the EPA? And as we heard Justin say, it kind of forces Biden to narrow his focus. Where do we go from here on this issue? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd like to raise one uh, strategy or one sector we haven't talked about so far, and that's the private sector. And citizen demands, consumer demands to the private sector, they really work. And many companies are very sensitive now to the fact that their consumers, people buying their products, want something better. They want climate-friendly products. They want sustainable, non-toxic uh, kinds of products. And I think though each one of us has an opportunity every day to affect the way that the private sector works, the 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 companies that we consume from works. And I think that's very, very important. Um, and I, I think, you know, each one of us plays a role 
And also there's actually a very small, like under a hundred number of companies that have historically contributed to the vast majority of the global warming we see today. And if we can make those companies accountable, many of them energy companies, if we can really motivate them to move rapidly to renewables, that is a really effective way of moving this needle forward on on the climate um, on the climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of, of politics in this issue, but in the end, we are consumers, and we do have that power. Sabrina, I really appreciate the insight today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Sabrina McCormick, Associate Professor of Environmental and Occupational Health at George Washington University. And share your thoughts on this latest SCOTUS decision on our Facebook at WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, some doctors have to balance their faith with the medicine they practice. We're going to meet one who shares her take on the abortion debate. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. Florida's 15-week abortion ban was temporarily halted this morning, then brought back within the hour. The ban originally went into effect Friday. The short-lived injunction by a Leon County Circuit judge cited the state's constitution, which includes an amendment that protects the right to privacy. Governor Ron DeSantis' administration quickly appealed, so the 15-week abortion ban stands for now. There are exceptions, if the mother's health is threatened or if there is a, quote, fatal fetal abnormality. We recently spoke with Dr. Cecilia Grande on Friday, a gynecologist who operates out of Baptist Health South Miami Hospital. And she shared with us how the legal back and forth can lead to confusion for medical providers and patients. Also, how this has affected her personally. And this is our conversation with Dr. Grande. You're a Catholic doctor who does not perform abortions. Do you feel you have to reconcile your faith in any way with your profession? Not at all, because we live in a secular society. So it's not about me, it's about the patient. Um, I feel that I'm Catholic because my parents fled Cuba, my grandparents fled Spain. I was born in Puerto Rico, Uh, but my parents could have been Jewish and then my faith would be different. So, you know, we are supposed to separate our personal and moral views from giving the patient the best advice we can based on their particular situation. So I believe in evolution and that doesn't necessarily go with every Catholic teaching. So I very, I try to be very ethical, remember all the bioethics that I was taught in medical school and separate what my religion or my belief is from what is medically necessary for the patient. This is why being Catholic, I don't do terminations. But if I feel that a a patient needs to have one for whatever personal reason, I point them in the right direction. We know Florida's 15-week ban on abortions is going through the courts, and one judge has ruled to temporarily stop the ban. But that could be confusing for patients. How does this affect your conversations with patients? Well, we tell them, first and foremost, that in Florida, if they want to have a termination of pregnancy, even if this ban goes through, even if there's an appeal and, and the Santis can get what he wants, then 
until 15 weeks, the patient can go to a clinic and get a termination of pregnancy. If the patient is further along and something has been discovered, like uh, an anomaly that is not fatal on the fetus, but it's pretty bad, and, and the family, the, the lady wants to decide to go ahead and having a termination, then she could leave the state and go to another state and have the termination performed. Um, the biggest issue is going to be with the emergency room doctors, if the patient needs emergency care, they're the ones that are gonna probably be a little bit more confused. Um, for us in the office, you know, if the patient has been getting care and we know exactly how far they are, it's easier for us to give the patient an answer. As a matter of fact, the minority of people who get terminations, less than 2%, get them after 15 weeks. Unfortunately, those that get them after 2% are basically the, the worst case scenarios. So, you know, I would just explain what the loss is. You know, I wanted to know where, for you, access to a safe abortion is important. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from data. It comes from my professors. It comes from what happens in other countries. So I was a resident between 94 and 98. And my professors who trained in the 60s used to tell me, oh, you see that room in that corner? That's where we used to put the patients that came in uh, with infections because they had terminations before it was legal. One of my partners, my corporate partners, he did his residency in uh, up north. And he tells me that the day that Roe um, was made into law, they celebrated in the labor floor with champagne because they knew that they were not going to have that many people coming very, very sick. In 1965, when uh, Roe versus Wade uh, was not uh, law, 17% of the patients that came in and had a maternal death, it was due to illegal abortions. Now, only 0.3% of patients who get a termination done, done by a provider that you know that is well-trained will have a complication, and that complication is not going to lead to death. It's just going to lead to hospitalization. So let me get this straight from what you're saying, that before the Supreme Court made their decision on Roe v. Wade, that mm -hmm. you had patients coming in and they couldn't, they would put them in a, another room, only they would only help them if there was some kind of infection or illness? No, no, they would help them, but by the time they showed up, they were already infected. I see. Patients went to get terminations, you know, illegally, and if everything went well, everything went well. The ones who showed up to the hospital were, were the very, very sick. Um, and that's why for the physicians who were doing the residency training, it was such a major event that the um, Roe versus way passed because they went from taking care of people who were very, very ill by the time they seek care to rarely having taken care of anybody who had a legal termination of pregnancy. One of the problems that is being um, commented, you know, that we're talking about is that now if you're in medical school and you want to be an OBGYN, there's going to be programs that are not going to have residents because you don't want to train in a state where you are not taught how to do a termination. So we're gonna have these voids in training. Um, and actually we're trying to figure it out 
how to get the residents in states like Texas to be able to do rotations in other hospitals, in other teaching hospitals outside of Texas so they can get the training they need. So this doesn't affect now, it also affects the future. That That's really interesting. That's something I had not even thought about. You know, I mean, you've worked in both a public hospital, Jackson, as well as a Catholic hospital, Mercy, over the course of your career. And I, I mean, listening to what you're saying, I get the sense of what shaped your way of thinking, but between those two hospitals, what else shaped your opinion on this issue? So I went to Catholic school. So I was uh, pro-life until I went to medical school. I lived a relatively sheltered life. My dad was an architect. We will, we, I lived in Puerto Rico. We have, were middle class. And once I started in medical school in a system that was just like Jackson, and I started seeing the rape, the rape victims, I started seeing the really bad birth defects. Once I started at Jackson, the youngest patient I delivered was 12 years old. She got pregnant at 11. Also, you know, once you are working for a while, for a while, you realize that a lot of the patients that are raped, they don't come to seek help right away. They have this guilt that is completely made up because they're the victims. But by the time they seek your help, there's a lot of the times they're past their first trimester. So again, this is not about me, it's about the patient. Hmm. So that's when my mind changed completely. I'm speaking with Dr. Cecilia Grande. She's a gynecologist who currently does any of her surgeries out of Baptist Health South Miami Hospital. We're talking about how the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade impacts physicians in South Florida who treat women. What misconceptions do people have? We also talk about her Catholic faith and how Dr. Grande views her own faith while also being passionate about access to safe abortions. You can find more on our social media at WLRN Sundial. So we heard from a Dr. Stephen Christie, and you know him. He's a physician here in South Florida, uh, also an attorney. He's a member of the Florida Bar, and he authored a book. It's titled Speaking for the Unborn. But here he is. He's speaking on the topic of ectopic pregnancies. Did I say that right? Yes, sir, e- you e- did. Yeah, ectopic preg- pregnancies and miscarriages. On the issue of ectopic pregnancy, there's not a single voice in the pro-life movement that doesn't believe in treating, aggressively treating, this terribly sad medical emergency, one that poses a very real threat to a mother's life. And on the issue of miscarriage, there are some who just don't understand the difference between a DNC as an abortion technique versus a DNC to remove a baby who has already died in utero but hasn't naturally been expelled. One is a procedure designed to kill a living baby. The other is a procedure to treat a mother whose baby has, who has sadly already died. So to be perfectly clear, there is no one in the pro-life movement, no one, that believes women should not be treated for either an ectopic pregnancy or the complications of miscarriage. Okay, help me understand the differences between procedures and how you treat someone having a miscarriage or ectopic pregnancy compared to an abortion. Well, first of all, uh, Steve Christie is the nicest guy on the planet. I've known him known him for 27 years. Um, he started his residency first in OBGYN. He did like a year and a half. I was actually his chief resident. And then he decided to become a radiologist because his wife is a radiologist. And they're the nicest people on the planet. Um, 
but the explanation that he gave, although mostly accurate, is not entirely accurate. So first of all, let's make the distinction between an ectopic pregnancy and a pregnancy in the uterus. So an ectopic pregnancy is a medical emergency. So the pregnancy did not implant in the cavity of the uterus is typically either in the ovary or in the fallopian tube. The fallopian tube in reality is about the diameter of a pencil. So once that pregnancy gets to a certain size, it ruptures. So like Dr. Christie says, if somebody comes into the emergency room and they have an ectopic, nobody's gonna question that treatment. First of all, because that pregnancy is not viable. And second, because the mom's gonna automatically die if you don't intervene. Now his second comment was about the difference between taking care of a patient that has a spontaneous abortion, meaning that that could be three, one of three things. Number one, that the pregnancy didn't develop and what you're seeing in an ultrasound is just like a big empty sac. Number two, something called a missed abortion, meaning that the pregnancy started, but the heartbeat stopped. Now you're measuring, let's say a fetus of seven, eight weeks, but there's no heartbeat. And number three, something called um, an incomplete abortion, a patient that comes in and the service is open and she's bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. Sometimes there's still a heartbeat in there. So the problem that we have with that is that if you are the doctor in the emergency room or you're the doctor on call and the patient comes in and it's not an ectopic, it's a spontaneous abortion, it's an incomplete abortion, especially in the state of Texas, you might have somebody who's not necessarily in the medical profession that may confuse what you're doing with a deliberate termination of pregnancy. And you're going to be investigated and you're going to defend your license. You're going to have to do that. That's going to cost you money. So although Steve Christie knows the difference because he did, he started a residency in OBGYN and then he did radiology later, not everybody knows the difference. And we have now uh, colleagues in Texas that are having to make the decision that when a patient is miscarrying, if they're not bleeding heavily, they send them home because they don't want to be caught in the legal uh, problem. It, it seems like there, it, it, there's so much room for misconceptions. And I wondered, yes. like, what's one or two common misconceptions that people have about abortion and reproductive health? There's many misconceptions. And the problem is that, again, um, the, deta- the, the devil is in the details. And when there's a law that doesn't go detail by detail by detail, then you have the patient, the doctors in the middle of the gray areas. Uh, I sent one of your colleagues an editorial from one of my colleagues in, in Texas, where she was on call and a patient who was 18 weeks came in and her water broke. It's what we call premature rupture of membranes and the mom had fetal parts in the vagina, that pregnancy will never ever get to be there more than a week or two. So we're, we're taught that when that happens, you have to give the mom pitocin, you have to give the mom something so, so she can miscarry faster. Because if you don't, she's gonna get an infection. Now, when I was at Mercy, because it was a Catholic hospital, they told me, doctor, you cannot do this because the, the baby has a heartbeat. Very easy. I transferred the patient from one hospital to the other. The worst thing that could have could have happened is that 
I could have gotten in trouble with the medical staff, but nobody was going to question my license because that's what the book says that no, no fetus can live outside and be and, and live at 18, 19 weeks. But if I wait and the mom gets a fever, then what I have now is a patient with a very, very, very bad infection. She can even lose her uterus or, or her life. So that's a great area. And it sounds um, like it, what, what yeah. you're saying, it, it, I keep hearing it over and over, is that now doctors, basically, it, is, it, is it happening now or is it something that you think is going to get worse maybe, that now they have to choose between practicing medicine and whatever the law is and, and, and they have to dance around this very carefully? Yes. So if you're at the University of Miami and you're in the Jackson oh. system, you're protected. There's a big umbrella. Um, but if you are not at the university, if you're not in a public setting, if you're in a private hospital, then that's where doctors have to think about it three times because then they, they have the liability. One thing that Dr. Christie said that I firmly believe that he believes, but most of us don't, is that there's a difference between life and potential life. So he took his theology in medical school and he knows that when he's doing an ultrasound and the fetus has six weeks that that activity that you see is not a real heart it's not a complete heart so one of the things that i've come to realize as i've gotten older is that you know if you took zoology in in the university you know that you know we're mammals we're not birds a termination of pregnancy done at eight or nine weeks it's not really terminating a baby in medical school we call it a fetus and that's where the detail is so the people who talk about pro-life and all this and and, and i i watch the discussions at tallahassee you know they say that the pro-life movement is to save lives and i say that that's not true the pro-life movement is not going to save lives because when somebody decides that they are going to have a termination, which is a very difficult decision, I imagine, it's a potential life. We don't do terminations of pregnancy when that potential life could be viable outside the uterus. And before Roe versus Wade, the patients getting terminations, 17% of of them would die. So if you ask any OBGYN, they'll tell you that legal abortions Safe lives. I'm speaking with Dr. Cecilia Grande. She's a gynecologist who currently does any of her surgeries out of Baptist Health South Miami Hospital. We're talking about how the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade impacts physicians in South Florida who treat women. You can find more on our social media at WLRN Sundial. As a Catholic, you know, how do you feel about this issue? It's not my decision. It's between them and God. That's why, you know... People should be allowed to make their own decisions. The problem with religion is that religion changes. So there was a time where contraception was completely condemned by the church. So different religions have evolved in many things. Uh, Sometimes patients uh, that are are practicing Catholics get married, something happens, and they get an annulment. So they got around that. Yeah. Um, Therefore, my belief is my belief. My job as a physician is to give the patient the right information and let them make the decision. 
looking at the Supreme Court decision, should there be a concern of doctors like you prescribing contraception to patients in the future? Yes, sir. And we have that problem uh, because although a lot of the politicians are saying, no, 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 we're not gonna mess with contraception. Justice Thomas clearly said that in future cases, we should reconsider all of the court's substantive due process precedents. But basically he alluded to the fact that he doesn't think the constitution gives protection to contraception. And then the other cases were about gay rights. And that's a concern, especially on the states that have the most dra draconian laws. So yeah, we're, we are extremely concerned about that. And both the American culture of OBGYN and the North American uh, Menopause Society, they are actually trying to get around that. They're trying to think how we can mail um, contraception to patients from one state to the other. And on the other hand, then there are states that are trying to see how they can ban that. It's a different planet from 1973. What do you foresee for the future of gynecological care now? Well, there's going to be a period uh, that I don't know if it's going to last a year or 10 years where we're going to have a problem in our residency programs because you're going to have that if you finish medical school and you want to be an OBGYN, to get your certifications, you need to have an idea of what to do if a patient's come, uh, come either for an elective termination or if they come and they are miscarrying and they're in the second trimester. You, know, you need to know how to deal with that. And if you train in Florida or in Texas and the law remains the way it is now, you're not going to be trained. So the first problem we're going to have is we're going to have an issue with our training. And then the second is that we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what we're going to see in an emergency rooms. I have now the luxury that I, I see most of my patients are insured. But, you know, uh, as I, I'm going to transition now, I'm going to, in a few years, go back to the public sector. And that's where the problem is. What happens with my patients that are underserved, that they don't have the money? People that already don't have the resources and the care are the ones that are going to suffer the most. Again, that was Dr. Cecilia Grande. She's a gynecologist at Baptist Health South Miami Hospital. You can find the latest news about abortion access in Florida on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, a South Florida attorney remembers debating against Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson when they were both in high school. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. The country's highest court has welcomed the first black woman to serve as a justice. Ketanji Brown-Jackson was sworn into the United States Supreme Court late last week. People in South Florida who knew Justice Jackson aren't surprised by her taking on this new role. At least that's what Palm Beach County State Attorney Dave Ehrenberg tweeted. He remembers some of those high school speech and debate circuit days with Judge Jackson. We spoke with him back in March when the hearings for her nomination were happening. Let's go back to your high school days. What do you remember about Ketanji Brown-Jackson and debating? Well, I went to North Miami Senior High School, and she went to Palmetto. Palmetto was a debate juggernaut. And to try to get an extra edge, I went to a summer debate program taught by the debate coach at Palmetto, and it was attended by hundreds of area students. And Ketanji Brown was the 
role model for all of us. I mean, when we were trying to learn how to do oratory, which is a big part of high school debate, which is dramatic interpretation or humorous interpretation, they had Katanji get to the front of the room and we all were mesmerized. And so then later when I uh, were at, was at debate tournaments with Katanji, I knew that if you were participating in her events, you were competing for second place. <laughs> All right, hold on a second. All right, we've been talking about this in the newsroom about how high school debate uh, in South Florida in the 80s, how it yielded a lot of big names like Judge Jackson, yourself, plus prestigious professors. Uh, there's a list we're finding. What was it? What was going on back then? What was it like competing back then? You know, it really was a very vibrant uh, environment because you had a lot of really talented individuals. You know, there were very few people at the time who seemed to be born in Florida, but this was the generation that was. It was it was Generation X that was born in South Florida. And so you had all these people come of age and really uh, go on to great things. I mean, Jeff Bezos went to Palmetto, apparently. Uh, you know, Jeff Zucker went to my high school, North Miami Senior High School, all these people from Florida. And it has taken this long to get a Floridian on the Supreme Court, even though Katanji wasn't born in Florida, but, you know, we claim her as our own because she grew up in South Florida. And, you know, a lot of the debate success was because of the incredible teachers who just were so motivated to make Florida stand out on the map because you had all these factories from the Northeast that all of these elite debaters and they always forgot about Florida. But then you had the likes of Fran Berger, who was the longtime debate coach at Palmetto who just forced her way into the leadership and made her team so successful with a lot of talented participants. Do you think that it's still that good? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it only gets better. I think now you have all these new generations of young people born and raised here who go through the, you know, the IB programs and all these new academies. And there's so much more innovation in public school in Dade County than it was back then when I was in high school. And, uh, you know, I live in Palm Beach County now, but I still know more about the public schools of Dade County than my community here because that's where I went and uh, I will never forget the lessons learned in high school debate and one of those lessons was don't try to compete against Katanji Brown. What what else is it though when you were a teen what is it that you liked about debate and what what else is it that it did for you? Well it gives you confidence to stand up in front of a group of strangers and it was always worse to speak in front of people you know I mean strangers are one thing but then when you have to compete against you know, uh, people in front of your classmates or in front of parents of your classmates, then, you know, it, it could be intimidating. And, you know, a lot of the things you learn in later life as an elected official or as a nominee of the Supreme Court, you learn back in high school debate. That's why I knew they were never going to fluster her. I mean, she's been before the U.S. Senate several times already. And a lot of those same senators who are now trying to uh, punch at her are ones who voted for her previously so this is all political theater yeah you, you tweeted uh, during the hearings this quote all of us knew who knew the young kitaji brown jackson are proud of her today but none would be surprised she has earned this moment tell me what stood out to you so far in these hearings i think just her poise you know there's an old adage if you don't have the uh if you have the facts on your side you pound the facts if you have the law on your side you pound the law and if you have neither on your side you pound the table and that's what's been going on, I think. A lot of these Republican senators have been pounding the table and raising their voice and express outrage, even though they voted for for ju judges who had the same voting record as Ketanji Brown-Jackson, you know, and even though they voted for Ketanji Brown-Jackson before. And so this is all a game of kabuki theater. And I just watch as 
she sits there and just listens and never gets flustered by their comments. And I think that shows you she has the temperament to be on the Supreme Court. She went to Harvard Law School. So did you. Were you both there at the same time? Yes, we also went to college together. So it was really cool because, you know, my high school didn't quite have the debate team that Palmetto had and Palmetto had the great reputation. So I was one of the few from my high school to ever go to um, Harvard. In fact, the the one before me who went to Harvard was Jeff Zucker. And that was uh, about six years before. But uh, Katanji was there. And to be in that environment with her, you know, she always was as friendly as ever. Like she never had an aura of superiority like some other uh, kids at Harvard may have, but not Katanji. She was always approachable. And that's why all of us who know her are so happy for her because she has earned this moment. You know, with your lens as an attorney, is there anything about how this process has played out that's left something to be desired for future Supreme Court nominees? Yeah, it's become so political where it's shirts versus skins. It doesn't matter about your experience, your qualifications, because she has extremely, um, her qualifications and experience are second to none. She's more qualified to be on the Supreme Court than any of the recent nominees who these same senators voted for. And so this is all political and it's a shame because the Senate is supposed to advise and consent but they're not supposed to, in my mind, treat these individuals as political pawns. They are judges. They're supposed to be above politics. And yet to ask them to get in the mud with them on political debates, to me, is a derogation of their duty. But I shouldn't be surprised because that's where politi- politics uh, has gone in recent years. So, that you know, some of the questioning, of course, has been about, you know, that she's uh, been an appellate judge that she's also been, uh, you know, defense, uh, worked on defense, um, you know, and, and then there was the questioning uh, at length of, uh, you know, the sentencing that she did with uh, the, on the child pornography cases. Does this or anything else from her legal career give any pause or raise any eyebrows? Well, keep in mind, the focus on her sentencing is a red herring because Supreme Court justices do not sentence people. That's done at the trial level. So this whole thing about, you know, the sentencing is to try to win political points. And some of it is a dog whistle to their QAnon nuts who are obsessed with human trafficking, even though they really don't even know what it is, and uh, and, and just believe that all Democrats are involved with uh, child pornography and trafficking. So I think that's a wink and a nod to the extremists in their party. Um, but, you know, the focus on those seven cases out of over 100 cases she has sentenced is also a red herring because in five of the seven, her sentence matched the recommendations of the U.S. probation office, which a lot of judges defer to. So you're talking about two sentences that were below the recommendations of the U.S. probation office out of over 100. And in one of those cases, the defendant asked for compassionate early release because of a severe medical condition. And she said no. So she's far from an extremist. She is not soft on crime. If, In fact, if she was soft on crime, then why does the Fraternal Order Police endorse her along with other national law enforcement organizations? And the answer is because she's not soft on crime. Mm. Um, I'm sure you're going to have what, a watch party. <laughs> <laughs> I do believe she'll be confirmed and then we'll celebrate. So, uh, yes, it's an exciting time for all of us from Miami-Dade County. Thank you so much for the time, sir. I always appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And again, that was Palm Beach County State Attorney and former State Senator Dave Ehrenberg. We spoke with him back in March. 
Ketanji Brown-Jackson was sworn into the United States Supreme Court late last week, so I'm sure that came with its fair share of celebration from those rooting for her from here in South Florida, especially from her former classmates and, of course, from her alma mater. You can find more about this story on our social media at WLRN Sundial. And that is the program for this Tuesday, July 5th, 2022. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Ovalle is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is our senior news editor. Peter G. Meritz is WLRN's vice president of radio. Engineering our board operations today is Richard Ives. The theme music for the program is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Balo at gobalo.com. Now, don't forget that if you missed any of the program today, you can always catch a rebroadcast tonight at 8 o'clock or just download the podcast. Just look up WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. And by the way, if you do like to do that, don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review. It helps the algorithm. Don't ask me to define algorithm, but it helps us in the end. So I always appreciate it. Well, coming up tomorrow on the program, we're going to introduce you to Julian Sanchez, This is a guy who spent more than 100 days rowing in a rowboat across the Atlantic. And he did it because he wants people to think a little bit more about the carbon footprint that we're all leaving behind. That story coming up tomorrow on the show. By the way, tomorrow we're going to also announce the Sundial Book Club pick for the month of July. I know usually I give this ahead of time, but... It's going to be a surprise. Going to be a lot of fun for this upcoming month. And by the way, you can always join the Sundial Book Club. It's on our Facebook page. Just look up Sundial Book Club. Ask to join. It's free. We'd love to have you. And when you're there, by the way, tell us what you're reading this summer. Tell us about the books you're reading. We'd love to hear about that. Also, maybe you've got an idea for what book we should be reading for the Sundial Book Club. Tell us all about it. Again, that's on Facebook, Sundial Book Club. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute.